Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, a psychotherapist and improvisational theater artist. And today we have a super cool guest coming on. I heard about him through my friend Jay Suko, and he substituted a class for us once. And then recently I took another class with him through Queen City. He's a marvelous person and really experienced improviser. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Margot. So nice to be here on your podcast and being one of the 116 people in the improv and therapy and healing world to be part of your podcast. Oh, well, I'm so pleased to have you. And um, we chatted a bit before we started today. And I wanted to ask you a bit about your background before improv, a little bit about your childhood. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, as I said to you um, uh, just a little bit before, the uh, I was born in Evanston, Illinois, uh, but the first two and a half years of my life was my mom, my dad, and a chimpanzee named Spanky and myself traveling around in a trailer home across America. <laughs> I always say that when you start out your life traveling in a trailer home across America with your parents and a chimp, you are not meant for a mainstream life. And uh, uh, after two and a half years, my mom and dad got divorced. Uh, I always joke saying my mom got me and my dad got Spanky. And <laughs> my mom moved in with her parents. Uh, and that's why I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois. And then my dad moved to LA and kept doing the things he was doing with chimps and had chimps for another 15 years because he was a professional entertainer with Ice Capades. He was one of the stars of Ice Capades. He and the chimp Spanky. Uh, were stars on that. And then my dad ended up having another four or five, maybe even six chimps that he did other things with. And then he went to animal training and uh, some other stuff. And my mom was a language arts teacher. And uh, uh, yeah, my parents met at Northwestern University. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, my mom's parents met at the University of Chicago. Wow. And uh, I always joke that because I didn't complete college, that's why I didn't meet anybody I married. <laughs> but I dropped out of college once I started taking classes at Second City and knew that that's what I wanted to do and it was a uh it made more sense to be than getting a liberal arts degree which is what I was on the path to do and so I was able to study at Second City with a lot of the people who were the pioneers of the work and you know I probably studied there. I studied there for about four or five years there and other places in Chicago. I mean, right. I like Improv Olympics. Classes. Uh, yeah, Improv Olympic. I was, uh, uh, I, we were part of the original uh, Improv Olympics that David Shepard created. And that was, uh, uh, I was on two teams. And yeah, and, and that was before Improv That's when Sharna was, Sharna Halpern was an assistant producer along with a man named Mark Halfan. Mm -hmm. They were working with David, and then when David left, uh, Sharna kept it going and turned it into what it became. Right, exactly. So you were pretty young when you started improv. Yeah, I was 20 years old. Wow. And um, do you want to tell me who some of your teachers were that you studied back then with? Um, yeah, I studied with Del Close three times, each time for about a year because uh, there weren't training centers yet involved. So uh, if you studied with someone, it was for a longer period of time. Um, I also studied with Michael Gelman, Don DiPolo, Martin DeMott, and uh, um, it's 
instead of so many different people, it's hard to, oh, I also took workshops with Paul Sills and David Shepard. And uh, one time with Roberta McGuire, um, John Michelski, who created the Improv Institute. Yes. Uh, studied with him. There, you know, once upon a time, I used to be able to know all the names of the people that I would studied with and could raffle it off like this. But since, since that was so long ago, and, you know, I continue to take workshops. Yes. Uh, even though Mick Napier is a contemporary, I took a workshop with him because, taking a couple workshops with him because it's clear he had a really different way of looking at things and doing things. And that's why I wanted to learn from him. I was just in Amsterdam and uh, I was teaching and performing out there, but there were two other people that were also teaching workshops who I'm familiar with. And so I took their workshops just because I believe that when, I believe that for me, I'm having a lifelong relationship with this art form. So as such, I can always keep learning. And, you know, part of what inspired me on that is knowing that Vincent van Gogh near the end of his life, was super inspired by Japanese paintings. Yeah. And so even though he was already a master, though unacknowledged and unknown, but he's already a master of art, he too, even at that stage, was finding new things to become inspired by, new other uh, visual arts to be inspired by, um, you know. And so that kind of shows that you can be a lifelong artist and still keep learning. And so, you know, I know a lot of people like Tara Francisco say, you know, you're, you're in this art for life and you're always learning. Uh, uh, and that's why I like to take workshops with other people when I can. I took a workshop with my friend, Jill Bernard. We're friends, but uh, I still take a workshop with her because she's a great improviser and a great teacher. Wonderful. So yeah, that's why, that's why after a while it's been a little bit, there's uh, another friend of mine, Stephen Davidson, who is in yes, London. Yes, 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 I know. Improvs from Muscus. I say that poorly, but he does a lot of stuff online that involves um, different elements of accessibility, either to uh, uh, of all kinds of different accessibility, and you know, and so he has workshops or panel discussions. I go to those so that I can learn more and see more. Uh, even if even if the predominant thing that comes out of it is I just had something confirmed, it's still worthwhile. Um, I also took a couple one day workshops with Keith Johnstone. Like it's you know and yes and yes Don, yes. And I think I said Don DePolo, uh, but there's a, and and so I feel bad like if there's anybody I left out that I should have said in that list of people that I've learned from, especially in the early days. Uh, I learned from a guy named Rob Riley, Danny Breen, who's no longer alive. These are different workshops that I had. Uh, you know, in those first years, I st studied with everybody I could. I later took workshops with Sheldon Patinkin, Bern Piven, and Joyce Piven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much anybody and everybody that I could. And those four or five years of studying with everybody was, I look at those years as like my getting an uh, undergrad degree. It's like getting a bachelor's in improvisation and theater. You know, it took about the same four or five years that it would take to get a normal theater degree. And uh, uh, and it was cheaper than going to college. <laughs> but I had a chance to work with all these people who had a heavy hand in creating the origins of this work. I'm, I never got to study with uh, Viola Spolin, but I did see Avery Schreiber teach a workshop at the Chicago Improv Festival that I produced. And Avery, of course, was raised by Viola in, in terms of his art. And so it was like, being with somebody who was bathed in the source 
of others. Right. Joyce and Byrne Pippen were similar. They also came came up under uh, Viola. So working with different people who were that close to it. So that's why I look at those four or five years as getting my undergrad degree in improvisation. Well, I think you got a postgraduate degree. Well, I would say yes. Now at this point, I feel like I feel like uh, I'm. You, you mentioned a couple of names I want to go back to. Of course, Viola Spolin is my hero. And, um, you know, she started Hull House, which was the first social work project in this country. And I'm a social worker. And uh, so the mother of social work is Jane Adams. Mother of improv to me is Viola Spolin. So um, I just love Spolin. And I think it's the groundwork and I'm surprised when a lot of people go through different classes and they've never even heard of Spolin so uh I I um and David Shepard David Shepard what a powerhouse what a person what an interesting character I spoke to him once about a year before he passed away um it was it was a conversation I couldn't put on broadcast <laughs> got a little saucy if you know what I mean sure. so but we had a lot of fun and um Michael Gelman when I read his book I just love his book I just read it time and time again I thought it was so brilliant really and of course um I've never met or taken a class with Big Napier I need to but when I read Im Impro um Improvise. Improvise. That's, yeah, that's Impro is Johnstone, Improvise is Napier. Right. So when I read that, um, it turned me around because I had been doing those 10 rules all the time and all this stuff. And that just like blew my mind. So I, I'm so envious in a way of you of having to study with all these mice, meisters and masters. <laughs> Say that 10 times. Uh, but that's a, a beautiful. Now, when you were studying at these various places in Chicago, were you also working? Were you doing shows? Were you busing um, tables for you? I'm sorry, I interrupted you before you finished your, your question. So you you weren't busing tables, were you? <laughs> no, no. I, I, at the time, I had like a part-time job, just was a regular part-time job. And as far as shows, there weren't a lot of shows in Chicago back then. Because back then, during that time period, there was Second City, and there was two touring companies for Second City as opposed to three. And then there, and for a period of time, Second City ETC did not exist. So there was Second City, and that was it. Uh, Improv Olympic, when it did get its start, uh, got its start two or three years after I started doing, taking workshops. But then it was only doing shows at bars. and I mean, it did not have its own venue like, like it later did. So... It was an itinerant company uh, show that went to different places. Comedy sports didn't exist yet. The Annoyance Theater didn't exist yet. So back then, if you wanted to perform, you would perform at open mics where you would get five to 10 minutes, maybe 15 at the most. And uh, so we perform, I, I, I was in a group called Stone Soup and uh, I would perform with them at different open mics wherever we could, because there were very few places to play outside of Second City. Um, and later that changed uh, when Jane Morris uh, helped create the Chicago Comedy Showcase, which then became a venue for people to do stand-up and sketch and uh, improv. And then, uh, and then later on, John Michelski created the Improv Institute, which was the first venue in Chicago to just be specifically for improvisation and only improvisation.
And I ran lights there for the first year of its existence. You know, I got in touch with John and Mikowski, and he told me, oh, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to my brother, Jeff. And now I regret that I didn't push him a little more and say, no, I, I'd really like to talk to you. Um, he was very humble. And uh, he, Jeff is the, the guy. And anyway, may he rest in peace. Um, so, John, not Jeff. <laughs> yeah, John, not Jeff. Jeff's alive and well. <laughs> um, so you studied so many forms. And uh, before I go into forms, I wanted to ask you about what do you think about the explosion of improv in the last, I don't know, is it a decade, 15 years, 20 years? I think Whose Line did a lot for that. Absolutely, Whose Line did. I would agree 100% with that, as well as like, Chicago in the 90s and the uh, aughts, you know, really drew in a lot of people uh, and, and it, you know, helped gave birth to Upright Citizens Brigade, which then you know, became really impactful in New York and L.A. Um, you, yeah, I, I think that the explosion of it has been great. I remember when John Belushi was alive. I remember reading a quote for him saying that. You know, he grew up on rock and roll and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he grew up on rock and roll. And he said that being in a comedy group was going to be. Was going to be for the next generation, what being in a rock and roll band was for his. And, wow. and in a certain way, that became very true for a period of time because it was very accessible art and very accessible entertainment. You know, in the sense of that. You didn't even need to learn how to play an instrument. You could get together with four or five people and put up a show. You didn't need sets, costumes, all the sort of other attributes that come with theater. Um, and so I'm not surprised that it hasn't spread like that because also, you know, I agree with Viola Spolin that everyone can improvise. The thing that I amended that is I don't think everyone can improvise professionally. And I feel like there's a big difference like that. I, I, the analogy that I use is everyone can bowl. You and I can go bowling and we can have fun. No one should pay to see us bowling. Right. And so uh, uh, absolutely it's, it's, you know, it's improv is almost like the folk music of our times because it's so accessible and everyone can do it. Such a and great analogy. Thanks. Uh, now I think that that's shifting and I think that's shifting because of social media. And I think that's shifting because, you know, it moved, you had the YouTube millionaires which now became TikTok. And now with TikTok, you don't even need other people to be doing other things because YouTube needed a certain amount of production values and oftentimes like a premise to do a YouTube show. But the people on TikTok that are making it, they're just themselves. Right. So I think that it shifted. And um, I think that, you know, that, that ability or desire to communicate for yourself, which might've been previously expressed in other ways is now being expressed through TikTok. And Twitter. Uh, it just seems like TikTok's a nicer place than Twitter. Yes, I, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that the org that improv is now spread around the world is a wonderful thing. Uh, what I get excited by is how other people come up with their own variation or their own version or their own forms or their own beliefs about improvisation uh, rather than you know, rather than the McDonaldization of improv. Right. You know, I, I'm, it's much more like cooking. 
I don't want everyone cooking the same way. I want to go to different places and experience different yes. types of skills. I love that. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I went, okay. to Dale, I went to Dale Carnegie and they, they counted. If you ever said, uh, in a speech, you had to put a nickel in a jar or something like that. And maybe that was Toastmasters. I did a lot of work on learning how to speak before I even discovered improv. I know what I wanted to ask you about the pandemic, how that has affected you and how it has affected our world of improv. Um, for me, it's given me access to so many wonderful teachers that I wouldn't have been able to travel to if it hadn't been for that. But what are your experiences from the pandemic? Well, uh, for me, the pandemic completely shut down what I was doing, like stopped it cold. Um, in 2020, I already, had, uh, before the start of 2020, I had seven international gigs lined up and they all went away. And for eight months, like uh, uh, like February till the end of September, I didn't make a penny. And so I had no money coming in. And a lot of, because of my age and also because of my, at the time, health complications, I didn't want to just go get a job because I was very vulnerable to what the, what COVID could have done to me. I was sort of like a, one of the poster children for uh, if this person gets COVID, they will probably die. And so a lot of it was just staying in, waiting for uh, the vaccines to come to be able to start re-engaging with life outside of my bubble. Um, in the beginning, I saw Zoom improv and I did not like it. I did not care for it. Um, but over time, I began to see the value in it and that it had a different value than the value that doing it live in person is. Um, and certain people became Zoom all-stars. And that was interesting to see, like certain people became much better known than they might've been prior to Zoom and uh, uh, became much more available and accessible. And I kind of felt like Zoom improv was serving a couple of functions. Almost as if Zoom improv was like the Viola Spolin of improv, in the sense of that it became the democratization <laughs> of improvisation, literally, because prior to this, if you were a traveling international improvisational artist, such as uh, what I was, but other people I know were, you had to have attained a certain level of excellence in order for festivals to want to bring you in. And so, because European festivals are different than American festivals. And, and, um, being as somebody who ran the Chicago Improv Festival for 20 years, I'm very familiar with the American style festival. Uh, and that is for the people who don't know is that American style festivals, we invite groups and duos and maybe solo people. We invite acts that are already formed to come in and then be part of the festival if they make it through our selection process. And then we showcase them. In Europe, for example, a lot of the improv festivals are people signing up to be part of the ensemble or signing up to be part of the workshops and then performing it. And so it's, they don't bring it, they don't bring in groups or teams. They bring in individuals to either become an ensemble or a team. And uh, occasionally they might have duos or a few local groups, but most of the festivals are people who are signing up for workshops and then being selected from those workshops to perform or they're being put together like 
uh, in Vienna, my friend Jim Libby runs his festival and, and every year when he does, it's called the Moment Improv Festival, he creates uh, a guest ensemble of eight or nine international artists who will be performing together for the week. And then there will be some local improvisers from Vienna who will be part of it. And, uh, uh, and they're the ensemble for the week. And uh, the, the international, and it's such a different way of looking at things. So, so under those prior things um, in Europe, you would not have been able to either get to Europe because a lot of European theaters or festivals want people of a certain renown. Whereas on Zoom, and, and you know, and I love international improv. I love people being able to meet and work from around the world. In 1990, yes. I was a production intern for the International Theater Festival of Chicago, and I fell in love with international theater. And it was, and it changed my life working with them. Just like going to improv changed my life, going to the working for the International uh, Chicago Theater Festival changed my life. And that's when I fell in love with seeing all the different ways that people do art and theatrical art around the world. Um, and every year with the Chicago Improv Festival, I was very proud of the fact that I at least had one international act there because I always wanted the Chicago Improv Festival to be an international improv festival. The only reason why Francis Callier, who co-created the Chicago Improv Festival with me, that we didn't call it the Chicago International Improv Festival is we just didn't want to call it SIF. <laughs> and so Chicago Improv Festival, you ever just go, oh, CIF. So much easier, <laughs> but we, there's always an international component to it, and uh, I'm proud of the fact that over the 20 years, uh, the Chicago Improv Festival had 27 countries wow. come perform, which in Europe or Asia is not as exciting because everybody lives so close. But you know, outside of Mexico and Canada, everybody else is far away. So to be able to get that many improvisers from other countries to Chicago requires a different kind of an effort than places like in Asia that are closer together or Europe that's closer together. And so we used to always, I used to uh, uh, love having all the international acts there. And I created a show called One World on One Stage, where like on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night, usually comedy sports, we would uh, have the day of all the international improvisers get together for the day along with some Chicago improvisers. And then that night they would perform together and each country would demonstrate something from their country. And then they would jam together and do shows together. And, and the feeling in that watching people of different languages playing together. And, you know, that's when it really became clear to me just how much Viola Spolin and Neva Boyd, uh, Neva Boyd with her game theory, who was right. the role model for Viola, just how right they were about how humans learn through play and how, and I consider play to be a divine right of being human. Mm -hmm. and I think play is one of the first things that uh, authoritarian autocratic uh, governments that dictatorships take away from the people is you no longer feel safe to play. Right. And whereas uh, I think, as I said, I think that play is a divine right of being human. And I would see these people playing in different languages through gibberish and all they might not have had the same language of words, and they might have had very different cultural touchstones or, or rituals or codes of conduct, and but they all shared the same language of improvisation. Yes, yes. 
And they all understood that and shared that and played from that. And so just watching all these people play together, there was so much joy. It felt like the answer to the Tower of Babel, Babel? Babel, yeah, Babel. <laughs> it felt like the answer to Tower of Babel. Like, ah, you know, if you want to get all of humanity on the same page, don't try to speak the same language, play together. Yes, and, yes. Uh, so there was just such a joy with that event. It was always one of my favorite shows of each year Chicago Improv Festival. So I'm a huge fan of international improvisation and I'm a huge fan of improvisers from around the world and artists from around the world getting to meet each other and get to uh, be spend time together in a playful way that shows what they do. Now, most of that was not available or accessible for the average improviser or beginning improviser and intermediate improviser because either of finances uh, to travel to another country or not being invited, you know? And so what Zoom did for that section of people, people like you, as you said, Margot, that you had access to teachers that you would never have access to unless maybe you went to the San Francisco Improv Festival and three or four of those teachers were there. Or if you went to different festivals and met people along the way, which is what happened in, in the United States during the festival period of the, again, like the 90s, the aughts, maybe even parts of the 10s. And suddenly this became available for everyone. And suddenly the same sense of joy of, oh my gosh, I just improvised with somebody from Norway. Oh my gosh, I just improvised with somebody from Singapore. That joy became available to everyone through Zoom. And that yes. was yes. Really amazing, as well as having a chance to have different teachers. And that part of it became really amazing. And I'm glad that it became available for everyone who wanted to do improv. I also saw, as everyone has probably talked about, that there are people who were able to do Zoom improv and will probably continue to do Zoom improv that would never do improv in person or have difficulties doing improv in person, either because they live by themselves in a small town in Mexico and there's no improv scene around them for four hours, like someone that I know, uh, uh, and or they have, have physical disabilities that make it very difficult for them to go to an improv theater or training center, certainly a festival, or they have some sort of intellectual disability that may get in the way of something, you know, like an element of autism or they're profoundly introverted in some way that just it's not, they don't feel good about going in person. That side of Zoom also became really clear and really important. And I certainly feel that now that the world is moving back into 3D again, that that side of Zoom will continue because that side of Zoomprov is what I call it, Zoomprov really does serve those sections of people. And I certainly think that as those of us that are able to and want to move back out into the world of 3D, there will still be Zoom improv for those people that it really serves in that way. I don't think it's gonna be the same numbers that it's been. Uh, everybody that I know that's done Zoom improv said that their audience numbers are dwindling, that the participants are dwindling. And that makes sense to me as, as people are able to do stuff live again. But I also don't think it's gonna go away. I think it will always serve a segment of human beings that previously were not served. So for those two things, those are what I think are really great about what happened with Zoomprov. Absolutely. I was working with a group of children in India 
who were all over a certain area of India, but they were either in foster care or whatever. And, um, you know, to play with people in India or Japan or Africa, I mean, such a great thing. Now, that brings me to something that I think you started around 2017, and it was a global improv walkabout. Yeah, uh, that's what I called it. Um, uh, I didn't know it was going to be called that. Like, have it, it sounds like a brand name now because I have a website, but you know, um, it wasn't meant that. I mean, I'd finished producing the Chicago Improv Festival, I'd done that for 20 years, and I was like, I've done my job. I've committed my time. I've done my part. And, and I am retiring from producing the Chicago Improv Festival. And I was also letting go of uh, producing the college improv tournament that I created. And oh, wow. a lot of the question is then what's next, you know, and, and um, especially because in America, there are no third acts. So like, where do I go find a third act in America when there isn't a third act? And I didn't know what was next. And I know you can't force what's next because it's like trying to force flow and you can't force flow. You can only go, you know, be open to it and then go with it, but you can't force it and you can't force what's next. And so I realized that I was in a period of transition and I don't know how other people feel, but I don't like transitions. I love transformations because to me, a transition is like walking through a room or a series of rooms with your eyes blinded and your hands out trying to find something. You don't know what's there. You don't know where you're going. You don't know if it's the right thing. It feels uncomfortable. It's awkward. It's difficult. That to me is transitions. I love transformations because the transformation calls forth everything that you have and own within your heart, your spirit, your body, you know, your mythology uh, to be able to focus on something to become something more or different. Now, I also know you can't force a transformation because a forced transformation is really just an adventure. Okay. And, you know, I also make the case that you could bet what is a transition except for a failed transformation. So as such, <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I was invited um, after doing a podcast with Jimmy Corain. And I yeah, said, I love you know, Jimmy. Gonna, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, now that I'm done, producing the Chicago Improv Festival, I want to go do what I've been wanting to do for years, which is start traveling around the world, teaching and performing, working with other international artists and communing on that level with the art and theater. And, and, and somebody reached out to me saying, we're doing our first ever uh, Prague Improv Festival. Would you be interested in coming out? And I'm like, hell yes. And then once I knew that I was going to go out there, I started reaching out to other people who I'd previously worked with at the Chicago Improv Festival. Uh, for example, a lot of the people that would come to the Chicago Improv Festival from other countries would often stay at my apartment. And so the week of the Chicago Improv Festival, there would always, it would always look like a hostel in my <laughs> There were so many different international improv artists there. So I started reaching out to some of the people that I knew and saying, if I'm, I'm coming out to Europe, do you mind if I come out and do this? And, you know, and they're like, would you be interested in me coming out there? And they're like, and some would say yes, some would say no. And if they said no, it's because the time wasn't right. Rather than no, we hate you. It was more like, no, we, you know, we're going to be out of town or we're not doing anything at the time. Other people were like, yes. And so for me, I was like, I took my inspiration from uh, the aboriginals of Australia 
which is they go on walkabouts. You know, they go on walkabouts for a couple of reasons. They go on walkabouts if they're bored, they have nothing else to do, they'll go on walkabouts, <laughs> which to me is like the equivalent of, well, I'm going to go on an adventure, see what I find. But then there's other times they go on a walkabout because they want to commune with their ancestors, they want to commune with the earth and the sky, and they want to get a different answer than what they previously knew. And that the better answer is by walking and going on a walkabout. And so I thought once I knew I was going to go to Prague, I'm like, I still don't know what I'm going to do next. So I'm going to go on a walkabout. I'm going to go on a walkabout to different cities and different countries of improvisation and just see what happens. You know, not expecting it to be, to be anything other than its own experience. And then over time, once I was over there, well, once I got over there, uh, uh, and I was over there, people then in other countries started asking me to come over to their country. And so I kept going. And what turned out to be the walkabout turned out to be its own transformation. And so for two and a half years, I taught and performed in 25 countries and 61 cities. Wow. Whoa. And uh, I was only in America maybe three months a year. The rest of the time I was around the world. And I that's when I just started calling, this is my walkabout. I'm on a walkabout. And I also kept saying, well, you know, because people would ask me, are you going to do this forever? I said, I'm going to do it until the universe says it's time to stop because it's a walkabout. So when it's time to stop, you know, because you're given the sign. So everything else was part of my ongoing walkabout, which is why I later then started hashtagging it uh, on social media, Global Improv Walkabout, and then named my website Global Improv Walkabout because it was its own thing. And indeed, I was right that the universe would say it's time to stop because it came up with COVID and said, <laughs> and that's when everything stopped. I know. Uh, I know. And so uh, just last, uh, this, just the, in April, I had a chance to go to Europe for the first time in two and a half years. And I went to England and Ireland and the Netherlands uh, I was in Amsterdam for the first time, but the others, uh, I was in Liverpool for the first time, but places like London and uh, Dublin, I'd been in before. Uh, so I went over there to teach and perform, and it was the first time teaching and performing again internationally in two and a half years. And it was such a blessing to have it again. And while I was there, people in Poland and India and Czech Republic said, now that you're traveling again, would you be interested in coming back over here? So I was really glad to get those invitations. I was really glad to do it again. I was really glad because I was like, okay, now if I choose to stop, it's me choosing to stop. It's not COVID stopping me. Right. And right. then, you know, other people asking me, would you be interested? It was great. Because my two biggest fears during the COVID era, my own personal, my own two personal biggest fears during COVID were one, that I was going to die from COVID. You know, because... My, uh, at the time, I had a diabetes diagnosis. I was considered obese and I had high blood pressure. I had an enlarged prostate. And with my age, all yeah. those things put together prior to the uh, vaccine, I was one of the people that like, if you get it, yeah, I'll be gone. And, uh, um, and then my other fear during COVID was that I would become irrelevant. With all the changes that were happening, right, with right. Zoom online, with everything else that was happening, that uh, I would be irrelevant. That just people were like we've moved on. We're we, you know, 
And it was so, and I know I've had a lot of friends say that they thought that was a silly fear on my part and they didn't think that was going to be true. But I was so glad to see being uh, international and working with, uh, you know, international improvisers again and being asked by the people again that indeed that's not the case. I'm not irrelevant. You know, 